Well, this morning uh, we conclude the series that I've been teaching during this hour, a consideration of children, church membership, and the ordinances. And last week I began giving some do's and don'ts, so to speak, uh, for parents regarding their children, uh, for parents regarding the evangelism of their children and responding to and cultivating professions of faith in children. And along the way, I've addressed some common parental pitfalls and ways to avoid those pitfalls. And so last week, I gave you two main points of do's and don'ts, and I put it this way. The first point was this, parents be gospel evangelists and not moralistic legalists. Strive to be gospel evangelists for the sake of your children who are prone, like every other sinner, to be moralistic legalists. And so I said the ultimate goal of parenting is to parent in such a way so as to be used as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord that you might bring them to salvation through faith in Christ, point them to Christ, and be used then as a servant of Christ to disciple your children. And so I pointed out that if we're not careful... Our focus as parents can be to bring up our children to be obedient children, to have good morals, rather than for them to see themselves as sinners under the wrath of God in need of a Savior. And there's a vast difference between the two. One is legalism, one is the gospel. Uh, One will lead them on the broad way that leads to destruction, and the other will point them to the narrow way through faith in Christ. And so to combat that danger that we face, pitfall we face as parents to uh, point our children to be moral but not come to Christ, then we have to remember this biblical truth that sinners are prone to trust their family lineage, they're prone to trust their own supposed good works and their supposed goodness. And so our children, like all unconverted sinners, are prone to trust in their family heritage, so to speak. Their supposed good works and supposed goodness. And this is a danger that I said that our children have in particular because they are growing up uh, in homes and where the gospel is central and in which they come to church. They rub shoulders, so to speak, with believers. They in some ways participate in and benefit from being a part of Uh, the body of Christ by virtue of their presence, hearing the word regularly. And so they are particularly in danger of trusting those things rather than the person and work of Christ for salvation. Our children can be falsely assured of salvation, believing themselves to be Christians just because they're growing up with all the blessings of having parents who know Christ, parents who are pursuing Christ, parents who are following Christ. And so it is not uncommon for parents to mistake a somewhat moral life that is more connected to the home they are growing up in and the biblical standards their parents are rightly applying to that home and to their children rather than it being the result of faith in Christ and true conversion. And so it's Just to shorten that, it's not uncommon for parents to mistake children who are compliant, so to speak, especially in younger years, to the standards of the home uh, with salvation, rather than they can think, well, this, this must be evidence they're saved, when really they're just being compliant children. They're growing up in an environment in which they're being restrained from certain evils and wickedness out there, and their own wickedness of their own heart is being restrained by being under the word of God and in Christian homes. And so we can mistake that for conversion when really they're just being moralistic and little legalists. And so it takes time for that to bear fruit to see, is that conversion or is that possibly them being legalistic. And so parents, we have to be careful to be gospel evangelists, not moralistic legalists. We have to have the gospel ever ever before our children. And if our children profess faith in childhood, 
then we want to encourage them in that profession of faith. We want to continue to teach them what the Bible says about the gospel. And we want to cultivate that profession biblically in the home. But we must be patient. We must wait for the older years, years of maturity, before pressing them to things like baptism, church membership, and the table of the Lord. And so the first point last week was parents be gospel evangelists and be careful not to be moralistic legalists. Secondly, I said last week, parents be teachers, not televangelists. Be teachers of the gospel. Again, over time, and I mean thoroughly teaching the gospel to your children, and not be like televangelists that are looking for quick decisions. And so I said, be teachers through the long haul, because parenting is a process, not an event. We're to be bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so I warned us against uh, presenting to our children an abridged gospel, a shortened version, so to speak, of the gospel. The home is a wonderful place through the years where we can teach our children the gospel from the scriptures, from various passages, and all the the particulars of that gospel through the years, rather than just an abridged version of the gospel, and surely not an edited version, which would be no gospel at all. And so it is often true, I pointed out last week, that people don't know enough of the gospel to believe the gospel. Sometimes people don't believe because they don't really know enough of the content of what the gospel is. And so in our evangelism in general, we need to be teaching the gospel to people, the content of what the Bible says about a whole host of things that are gospel-related, about God, about man, about Christ, about grace, about the way of salvation, about faith in Christ and what that is and what it means. And surely this is true when it comes to our children. We need to take the time to teach them much of what the Word of God says. For this is one of the reasons why there are so many false conversions. Because people get just little nuggets of the gospel that really haven't even been explained to them biblically and clearly. And they profess faith in something, again, they really don't know enough about. And so, no one is saved. Let me expound upon this point a little bit more. No one is saved unless the gospel comes to bear upon their minds. They need to know the truth. They need to understand the content of the gospel. The Bible describes unbelievers, those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, as those who are futile in their speculations, Romans 1 verse 21. They're they're those who, apart from the light of the specific special revelation of God in Scripture, they're... They're futile in their speculations. They come up with all kinds of beliefs that are contrary to what's true about God, about man, about sin, about Christ, about salvation. They're described in this way, and we were once there, Ephesians 4.18, darkened in their understanding. Ignorance it speaks of. Not again intellectual ignorance in general. They might have a high, high IQ and score very well on various tests, but a spiritual ignorance and lack of understanding. And so, again, unbelievers think wrong thoughts about God, about themselves, about their spiritual condition, their sin, the remedy for their sin. And so in evangelism, we bring truth, the truth of the gospel, to come to bear upon the mind by teaching the truth, the content of truth. Faith comes by hearing the word of truth. Romans 10, verse 14, How will they call upon Him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And so you reverse that. God sends us to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is preached, it's proclaimed, it is explained, it is taught. They hear, it comes to bear the content of that upon the mind. We'll talk about how it comes to bear in other ways, but upon the mind. And therefore, they believe the content of what has been proclaimed to them. And so for someone to believe, they have to know the content. And so 
in our parenting, applying it to that, Bible words, gospel words need to be explained. What is salvation? What do we mean? What does the Bible mean by that? What is sin? How does the Bible describe that? What is redemption, justification, propitiation? When we speak of the incarnation, what are we referring to? What does it mean to believe? What is saving faith? These are things that we must teach our children. And again, this takes time. And parents have the time to do that. God has given you children as a stewardship for over a period of years to teach them these things from the Scriptures. And in fact, parents have the responsibility to do so. You can bring them to church. You should, of course. But it is not the primary responsibility of pastors or even other believers in this church to teach them those things. It is the primary responsibility of parents to do so, to be bringing them up, teaching them the gospel, sitting down explaining these things from the Scriptures over time and over years. And so the gospel needs to be taught. Now let me demonstrate this from the Bible. Let me demonstrate how the gospel needs to be taught and how this comes to bear upon, again, this consideration of children and baptism, church membership, the Lord's table. But of course, before that, their salvation. Jesus taught. He taught. He was a teacher. Matthew 4 verse 23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was a teacher. We're reading in Matthew 5 through 7 during our consecutive reading of Scripture, uh, during our worship service, the Sermon on the Mount. And when he finished that Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. He taught. Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus taught. He was a teacher. And the apostles then taught the gospel. In Acts 4, verse 18, it says, When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They were teachers, teaching people about Jesus and this gospel. And so those who persecuted them said to the apostles, stop teaching people these things. But it says in Acts 5.42 that they were in the temple and from house to house teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were teaching people. Now turn to Acts chapter 17 and let me show you this in even more detail in Acts chapter 17. And this is very important because, again, we think of evangelism sometimes as an event, as something we do. Like, it, they're like, uh, if you've read Will Metzger's book, uh, Tell the Truth, on a, it's a book on evangelism. He talks about uh, people passing out tracts, which we're not saying is a bad thing to do, but, but seeing evangelism is nothing more than just passing out things or giving things that are, he calls them gospel bombs in one of his illustrations where people are just getting the gospel in a short, abridged version to someone and then they retreat. No, the gospel must be taught. So in Acts chapter 17, we see this as what the apostle Paul did, for example. Acts 17 verse 1, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis um, and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, this was his habit. This was his method. He wasn't like an itinerant evangelist that just held a crusade and had an invitation. No. He went, this was his custom. He went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The word reasoned here, one Greek lexicon says it means this, to discuss, to discourse with, to conduct a a discussion of speaking to someone in order to convince, to address, to speak, to reason with, as it's translated here. It's the idea of a dialogue, a discussion, receiving and answering questions. So this was his custom, to reason from the Scriptures, He taught the Scriptures. We would say 
say it this way. They had open Bibles. Now, of course, they didn't have Bibles like we have today. They didn't have their scrolls they carried around of the Old Testament books. But, but they would, he would teach from the Scriptures and show. And then verse 3, how did he do that? Explaining. Explaining. It means opening the eyes of understanding. The, the word means enabling someone to perceive and understand, to interpret, to open up. That word explaining means. And giving evidence. That word means to expound upon, to point out, to present evidence, to show to be true. So, so again, he's reasoning from the Scriptures. He's explaining. He's opening these things up to them from the Scriptures. He's giving evidence. He's showing this to be true, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. They were persuaded. They were convinced, the word means. They believed as a result of being convinced by the teaching of the Scriptures, explaining these things to be true. Again, not just, here, let me, let me just give you a quick, abridged version of something. No, he's... He's teaching them. He's explaining. He's reasoning. He's expounding. He's showing these things to be true from the Scriptures. Then you look down in verse 11. Now in Berea, it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Those in Thessalonica did not. They were a little more opposed, and they didn't, even with the reasoning and explaining, they didn't receive it as the Bereans did. And they were examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were studying them. They were asking questions. They were looking carefully into these things. And so then you look in verse 17. Now Paul in Athens says he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. He's reasoning. Again, this, this is not what you can see today sometimes where someone is just preaching on a street corner for people just walking by and they might hear a phrase. No, he's doing it in a way and in context in which he can sit down and reason with people, explain and talk to them, teach the gospel to them. And then in chapter 18, verse 4, in Corinth now, chapter 18, verse 4, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to convince or persuade Jews and Greeks. In chapter 19, verse 8, now in Ephesus, he entered the synagogue and continues speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. See, this was the habit, the custom of the Apostle Paul, the other apostles, they they're for a period of time reasoning, explaining, expounding from the Scriptures to persuade them these things are true. And so then in chapter 24, Paul before Felix, the governor, Acts 24 verse 25, it says, but as he, that is Paul, was discussing, uh, same Greek word that's translated reasoning earlier in the passages we looked at, as Paul was Discussing, discussing with Felix righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present. When I find, find time, I will summon you. So, so here we see some of the even content of what he is discussing and reasoning. He's talking about righteousness, God's standard, His holy moral law and righteousness and how we don't have it and how we need it and self-control. And the judgment to come. So, again, he's discussing these things. He's showing Felix these things. He's teaching the gospel to him. And then near the end of Paul's life and ministry in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, when he's under house arrest, it says he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Acts 28, verse 31 preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness, unhindered. See, this is the pattern of evangelism. The gospel must be taught. And as parents, we have the perfect opportunity to do that. God gives us these children. 
babies that then we raise and we, we nurture them, not only physically but spiritually, and we teach them the gospel through the years. And so we should make this our pattern. We're not just looking for an event where they make a decision for Christ. We're not televangelists. We're teachers of the gospel. We should follow this pattern of explaining and expounding upon and teaching our children through the years. So parents, be teachers. Be teachers of the gospel for the long haul. So parents, be gospel evangelists, be teachers, be careful not to be moralistic legalists or televangelists. And then expounding on that, let me give you a third point. Parents, be discipleship-oriented, not decision-oriented. Be discipleship-oriented, not decision-oriented. Again, the goal is not so-called decisions for Christ. The goal is not simply to get our children to pray the sinner's prayer and then pronounce them as converted to Christ and believers in the Lord Jesus. Again, I've brought this up before. If, if it was our method to do so, if this is how we wanted to practice it, then in our next vacation Bible school, we could have a time in which we could speak of righteousness and sin and God and His holiness and the wrath of God and the judgment to come. And I could get a quote-unquote decision from probably the majority of our children at VBS, at Vacation Bible School. For when they hear those things, they're frightened, and rightly so. But we could just have them bow your head. If, if, no one, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Uh, raise your hand, okay, then pray this prayer after me, and we could do that. But that's not the focus, and parents, that shouldn't be yours either. Now, again, I know that's not the practice of most of the parents in our church, but if we're not careful, we can be looking for, oh, the decision-oriented focus, rather than being gospel evangelists, teaching them over the long haul, and then, as they do profess faith in Christ, be discipleship-oriented. You teach them what the call of Christ is to discipleship. For if they profess faith in Christ, then we should be doing what is a part of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded. We should be saying to our children, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross or deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We should be teaching them the words of Jesus. When he said in Luke 14, verse 26 and following, if anyone comes to me, he must uh, and does not, excuse me, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In other words, they calculate these things. Before you build a house, you calculate, do I have enough to finish it? Before I go to war, a king considers, can he win the war? Or should he seek terms of peace to avert war? He says, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. You need to count the cost of discipleship. Teach your children the cost of discipleship. Teach your children that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. Be discipleship oriented. And understand, again, children at young ages haven't even faced certain temptations and trials and things that will even test whether or not their profession of faith is genuine that will say, I'll die for Christ. I will go and deny myself and take up my cross and follow Him. And so parents, be discipleship oriented and again, not decision oriented. And again, the home is a place where we can do that. A fourth point, and this is very important. 
Parents, don't mistake conviction of sin for faith in Christ. Don't mistake conviction of sin for faith in Christ. We could say it this way. Don't mistake conviction of sin for conversion. Conviction of sin is not equal to faith in Christ. It's not the same thing. Now, conviction of sin is necessary for a person to come to faith in Christ. No one is saved apart from being convicted of their sin. But conviction of sin is not the same as faith in Christ. It is not equal to faith in Christ, and it is not equal to conversion to Christ. So, parents, what we need to do is know what the Bible says about conviction of sin in the nature of true saving faith and the relationship between the two. So God, the Father, the Son, sends the Holy Spirit. You remember in, in John 16, beginning in verse 8, Jesus said, And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning righteousness, or excuse me, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, how we've broken God's law, we're guilty before God, how we're unrighteous, but we need a righteousness, but we don't have one of our own. And concerning judgment, that our unrighteousness deserves the, the judgment of God. And so the Holy Spirit convicts, and that word convict, convicts means also to convince to convince people they are sinners. And so the, the source or means of conviction is the Holy Spirit, the Word, the Holy Spirit using the Word of God. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, to use the Word of God to expose, to, and that's another uh, meaning of the word to, to convict. It's, it's literally the idea of shining a light upon something so as to show the, the state of it, to expose something. And the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God as we teach it, as we're teaching the Gospel through the years, and it shines its light upon the heart of our children and lays it bare before a holy God. And they're convicted and even convinced of their sin. And so the Holy Spirit convicts. The Word of God convicts. But the Holy Spirit uses people who take the Word of God to convict of sin. And so he uses us as parents, as instruments of conviction. He uses people. And we see that in the scriptures in various ways. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and reprove him. And the word reprove is the same Greek word translated convict. Go and convict him of his sin. You do that with the scriptures. Preaching is that way. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. The same Greek word. Convict. Preaching should be convicting and convincing. And so should our parenting. As we're teaching the gospel, it will convict them. It will shine the light upon their hearts and lay them bare before God and convince them that they're sinners. And that's absolutely necessary for sinners to be saved because conviction exposes sin. It convinces sinners that they need a Savior and conviction is the means by which God works in the heart of sinners to bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. And so we as parents should be using the Word of God to reprove, to convict our children of their sin. We should be using, when I've taught on parenting, so using biblical terminology, not words that aren't in the Bible about their sin, but biblical terminology and show them from the Scriptures that this is sin against God. Get to heart issues. Why are you being disrespectful? It's a rebellious heart. Why do you lie? What were you seeking? Why did you get angry? What idol are you seeking and serving? And that's why you're angry. You don't get what you want. James 4 verses 1 and 2. And therefore you're willing to fight over it. Why are you unhappy about not getting something you want in the store? It's greed. It's covetousness. It's idolatry. Why are you arguing and complaining? Instead, you should have a thankful heart. 
And so make sure that you're getting to heart issues in your parenting. And make sure they know that their sin is not ultimately against you or their siblings, but against God. And so again, you're being gospel-centered. And that convicts them of sin. But listen, parents, don't mistake conviction for conversion. A person can have the guilt of their sin, but never take it to the one who takes away guilt. Never come to the Savior. A person can be sorrowful over sin, but never come to faith in Christ. And therefore, when there is conviction of sin in your child, point your child to Christ. Teach them what faith is and who the object of their faith must be to relieve the guilt of sin. Very important because sometimes what happens, we see that our children are convicted of their sin and they're sorrowful and they may come to tears and they may be fearful of, of, of the, the judgment that their sins deserve. And we think, therefore, they're converted, but they've never come to faith in Christ. They're just convicted sinners who then now, going back to the moralistic legalism, they, they may think, oh, I've got this weight of sin. I, I want to be baptized. I, I want to... And they start wanting to do things, but the motive behind it could be to try to relieve their, the guilt of their sin through works in some way. So you have to probe into that. You have to ask questions. What do you do with the guilt of that sin? And make sure you're pointing them to Christ. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You teach that to your children. And sometimes, again, we find relief when our children are finally convicted of their sin, and we see that. But we don't say the way that sin and guilt of sin is removed is to come to Christ in faith and trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sin. And sometimes we fall short as parents in now explaining to them what saving faith is. In my discipleship group, Luther and the Reformation that we just finished, we talked about the, the nature of saving faith. What is saving faith? And and when we talk about saving faith, saving faith has what you might call three constituent parts, three elements, three components, or three aspects, whatever word you want to use. And, and those three aspects of saving faith are knowledge, assent, and trust. What Back in the days of the Reformation, in the Latin, they would say notitia, assensus, and fiducia. And so knowledge, assent, and trust. And all three elements of this must be present or it's not saving faith. It must include the intellect, knowledge, for we can't believe in what we don't know and understand. It includes the emotions, the affections. There is the guilt of sin. There's assent that I am a sinner, agreement with the gospel. But then there's the act of the will, fiducia, or trust, where now I'm resting in Christ. So there must be these three elements, understanding, agreement, and then volition. There must be knowledge, understanding, an intellectual grasp of the facts and content of the gospel. And that's why, again, we go back to, we must teach them the gospel. This is why when we as pastors sit down with anyone, adult or young, we ask questions, what is the gospel? Can you share with me from the scriptures? What, what is the content of the gospel? What, if you were to speak with me as if I'm an unbeliever, what would you share with me that I need to know from the scriptures? Can you summarize some of those things at least for me? And we ask those questions to see, does the person even understand the content of the gospel? And not just can they speak it, but can they then we say, can you show me that from the scripture? Because remember, Paul reasoned from the scriptures. The apostles reasoned from the scriptures. It's not just, oh, I know this to be true out here. This is what I've been taught. But no, where is it in the Bible? And so there must be a knowledge of the truth. But that alone doesn't save. Remember James 2.19? Even the demons believe that God is one. But they tremble. And so just intellectual knowledge just puts you in the, in the same category as the demons. They know truth. But it's necessary to know it to have saving faith. But then there must be more than knowledge. There must be assent. 
agreement. This is an, an emotional element to this. This is the deep conviction that having understood the content, now I know it's true. There's agreement with the truth. And now the person says, I am a sinner. And I'm grieved over my sin. You not only know that God is holy, but now you have the weight of your sin and you're grieved over your own sin. You're in agreement. I deserve the wrath of God. So this goes from just the content to now there is that conviction of sin and convincing the sinner that he is worthy of condemnation, that he is guilty. And so there's the weight of sin. But yet that doesn't save If it stops there, I know the content and I agree it's true and I feel the weight of my own sin. If you stop there, a person is not saved. And therefore, saving faith must have this third element, which is trust, fiducia in the the Latin. It's the volitional element. Louis Burkhoff said this, this is the crowning element of faith. Faith is not merely a matter of the intellect nor of the intellect and emotions combined. It is also a matter of the will. Determining the direction of the soul, an act of the soul and going toward its object and appropriating it. This is now a person who says, yes, I know the gospel and I'm convinced it's true. I'm convicted. I am a sinner and I am convinced that Christ is the only Savior. But if a person then doesn't now come to Christ in faith, resting in Christ, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of that sin, then it is not saving faith. So in this third element of saving faith, there is now a trust in Christ. The object of our faith is the Lord Jesus, who He is and what He has done to save sinners. Having understood it, now He's resting in Christ. See, that can't happen if you don't know If I ask you the question, what has Jesus done to save sinners? And you can't answer that from the Bible, then you can't place your faith in Him. You have to know the truth. You have to be convinced. Are you convinced and convicted that you are guilty? Yes. Have you placed your faith in Christ as your only hope of salvation? Is He the one you're resting in? You see, a person can have those first two elements. But if they haven't come to rest in Christ, forsake his own work, sees the futility of anything as a way to relieve the guilt of his sin other than resting in Christ's righteousness and Christ's death, then he is not saved. So here the sinner comes to Christ, not to baptism, not to church membership, not to the table of the Lord, to Christ. And he sees the beauty of Christ and he rests in him, he trusts in him. He puts his confidence in him, his hope in him. That's saving faith. So parents, don't mistake the conviction of sin for conversion. Again, sometimes we can think, oh, they seem so hardened to sin at some points in their lives. And now we see conviction and we think, oh, relief, they finally come to Christ. No, they may not. They may just be convicted, have those first two elements, but not the third where they come to Christ. So Press them to come to Christ. Don't mistake the conviction of sin for conversion or faith in Christ. And one way to do this is to constantly point them to the Savior. And when I say that, I don't mean just with words, although you're begging them and pleading with them. But I mean by teaching them, what does it mean to come to Christ? What is saving faith? What I just summarize, explain that to them. You study this. You understand this. You explain it to them. And so parents, be Christ-centered. Who is Jesus? What did He do to save sinners? He came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. What did He do? And point them to Christ. And then point them to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so parents, be gospel evangelists. Be teachers over the long haul. Be discipleship-oriented. Don't mistake conviction for conversion. Be Christ-centered. And and now let me just briefly give you some final do's and don'ts. Parents, do not press your children for your assurance. 
Sometimes parents press their children to, again, pray a prayer, make a decision, or they press them to baptism, join the church, more for their own peace of mind, their own assurance, so to speak, rather than for the good of their children. Be careful not to do this. This sometimes manifests itself by parents pressing these things when the child is not. There have been times through the years that we've seen more the parent is pressing for their children to be baptized, to join the church, to partake in the Lord's table, when the child is not pressing those things. And the parent often does this because it's more about them, it's parent-focused, and it really is about, again, the well-being of the child. But when you are discipleship-oriented, not decision-oriented, when you teach them what obedience to Christ looked like over the long haul, then the subjects of baptism, church membership, the Lord's table comes to bear. See, let me just share with you quite candidly. I know I have to be careful in this because I've been there with young children and you can explain to them the things. You can tell them what not to do and what to do at the table of the Lord and they still don't do what you tell them to do. But sometimes Children act certain ways during the table of the Lord because they haven't been taught what's taking place at the table of the Lord. And sometimes it's because parents aren't explaining. They're not discipleship-oriented. They're not teaching their children about baptism, church membership, and the Lord's table from the Scriptures. And so their children act certain ways, and they take lightly as the cup and the bread is passed, and they act in particular ways that can be rather flippant about those things. And it tells me that the parents aren't teaching them about these things. But see, if you're discipleship-oriented, you're teaching them about a whole host of subjects. And you're teaching them about that. And you're teaching them, even if they're not partaking, to they can still hear the Word of God if they believed on Christ. We're pointing people to Christ. We're proclaiming the Gospel until He comes. And that is for the good of their souls, whether they partake of that cup and bread or not. And so when you're discipleship-oriented, these subjects come up, but you're teaching them, but you're not pressing them. As they grow to maturity, they will be the ones who now are saying, this is what I desire. So make sure your children desire these things, and for the right reasons. Ask them those questions. Why? Why do you want to be baptized? You understand that baptism and church membership go together. You're not baptized as a picture of your union with Christ without being baptized as a picture of your spiritual union with the church and then joining the local church. So you know what the responsibilities of church membership are? Do you know 1 Corinthians 11 and the seriousness and soberness when you come to the table of the Lord? You teach them those things and then you ask questions and you make sure that if they're now desiring that, that it's for the right reasons. So make sure, parents, it's not you pressing them to these things. For if it is you pressing them, your children may just go through it more to please you than because they're seeking to please God or because they're converted. See, our children want to please their parents. And if you're pressing, they can do it for your sake. And so be careful, parents, not to press your children in these areas for your sake, for your assurance. And make sure it's your children pressing to these things with understanding as they grow and mature. Let me say this, parents, be patient farmers. Be patient farmers. Just brief exhortation. Sow the seed of the gospel. Water it. And be patient. And when something springs up, be patient. What may spring up might be true saving faith, it might get choked out. It might be on rocky soil. Now I'm using the language of Matthew 13. Parents, you should know Matthew 13. Pastor Ernest preached a number of messages on Matthew 13. You should study Matthew 13. And you should, when your child receives it with joy, it may be that they're saved, but it could be that they're immediately receiving it with joy. But then when the things of this world become press upon their hearts what sprung up was not true saving faith it gets choked out 
So be patient and wait for fruit that remains. Be patient farmers. And then finally, let me say this. Parents, be peacemakers and not peace breakers in this regard. If your pastors believe more time is wise or necessary for a child to be baptized, join Grace Fellowship Church and partake in the Lord's table, and you disagree with your pastors, don't sow the seeds of discord. And don't complain to your children. Instead, listen to that first lesson in this series where I talked about the motives of your pastors and the convictions of your pastors and that we're, we're seeking to be faithful to God as those who will give an account to Him. And we're seeking the good of your child and the good of the church. So don't react to the convictions of your Pastors, as I've sought to explain some of those things during this series, don't react in a sinful way. And don't complain to or in the presence of your children about disagreements you may have with your pastors. For what benefit is that? Well, how much harm is done by that? Parents, I just exhort you, don't sow the seeds of discord in the hearts of your children. Teach your children to respect their pastors even when there's disagreement, and be an example to them in this way. So, I said finally, but here's the conclusion. Five words, very briefly, five words. Pray, proclaim, point, protect, pastor. Let us pray for our children. Let us proclaim the gospel to our children. Let us point them to Christ. Let us protect them from false conversions and false assurance. And then the last word is pastor. Your pastor's desire, as God has given us so many children in this church, to to meet with children who profess faith in Christ, in order to get to know them more, to know more of their profession of faith. I've often said this to parents and young people. When adults visit this church, With some rare exceptions, by the time that adult gets to a new member class and sits down with their pastors in that process to to what we call a new member interview where they share what they believe about the gospel, and we already have done that. And we do it again in that process so that other pastors can hear that as well. But The norm is that even with adults, at some point, by the time they get to the point of joining Grace Fellowship Church, we already know a lot about those folks who have come to Grace Fellowship Church. And so children shouldn't be different. All of a sudden, a child wants to join, and we've never heard anything about their profession of faith, or we don't know. So what we want to do as pastors is is for those children who have professed faith in Christ, especially those who are older, but even those who are younger, We want to meet with them, to get to know them. What do they profess? What do they know? Ask them questions about the things we've talked about. And not just when they desire to be baptized and join the church, but before that point. And so God willing, as as pastors, that's one of the things we want to do over this coming calendar year, is to sit down with the young people in this church and shepherd their souls. If they profess faith in Christ, what, what is it they're hoping in and trusting in and, and develop the kind of relationship so that we can be teaching them as well and assessing and discerning where they are spiritually. So when they come to that point that we've described in which it is appropriate and fitting for them to be baptized, join Grace Fellowship Church, be at the table of the Lord, that we as pastors have been involved in that process as well. And so As we talked about these subjects, I know there have to be some questions in your mind. So let not the end of this series be the end of the discussion about these things. And if there are particular questions you have that I've not addressed, then come to us as pastors and and let's talk more about these things. Again, I've sought to just give you some principles along the way, some scriptural teachings, some convictions we have, show you why we have them from the Bible, so why we practice these things But we want to continue to talk about these things with you as parents in particular. And let's pray again for our children 
that indeed they would come to faith in Christ at young ages, but as they grow to maturity and come to the waters of baptism, church membership, and the table of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you that we've been given this responsibility as parents to bring up our children. Uh, Lord, not simply to educate them, although it includes that, and not simply to provide for them, although it includes that, not simply to protect them physically, although it includes that, but Lord, to teach them the gospel, the word of God, to point them to Christ, to reprove them with the scriptures, to point them to the glory of Christ as Savior, to teach them these things over the long haul. And we pray that as that is done, as the seeds of the gospel are sown, we pray, Lord, that you might use that to bring our children, even at young ages, to faith in Christ. And then, Lord, that we would see that nurtured and cultivated so as they grow to maturity, there will be fruit that remains, fruit that we see that is the evidence of regeneration. And Lord, as they grow to maturity, then they would Lord, desire to follow Christ in those ways we see in Scripture by being baptized, by being members of a local church, fulfilling the responsibilities you've given to us all to one another. Lord, I pray that they would desire to come to the table of the Lord. And so, Lord, we pray in all these things that you might give us unity in these things as a body of believers. Lord, I pray that the members of this church, again, would know the hearts of their pastors who also are parents who are and have walked through these things. And Lord, I pray that in these things that, Lord, even with this or other things where, where we don't, even as in the home, we don't always, even as husband and wives, have complete 100% agreement, that we would work through these things and seek the unity of the body of Christ and for the good of your church and for the good of our children in this case. And Father, I pray for our children that they would be protected by parents, by pastors from false professions, that we would not fall into those pitfalls that are so common even in the so-called evangelical church today. For the good of our children, for their sake. Lord, understanding we can't unsave our children. They would not press them the things that could lead them one day to, to be removed from the body of believers through church discipline because we've been so hasty. Help us to be patient and to teach. And Lord, to see your work in the hearts of our children that will bring them to maturity. We thank you that we've seen that in many of the lives of our children through the years who are now following you and serving you in various ways, even in this local church. God, continue to bring us all to spiritual maturity and bring this church to be a mature man to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.